Welcome to the CEC report for the 19th of October 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, political opposition to bank separation wavers as bankers warn we're not ready for new crisis. And secondly, Trans-Pacific Partnership will speed up neoliberal looting. So firstly today, got good news, political opposition to bank separation wavers as bankers warn we're not ready for a new crisis. So what we have to report today is good, excellent progress in our campaign to bring Glass-Steagall banking legislation into the Australian Parliament and that means not allowing banks to gamble any longer and that means um, sparing people's deposits from being wiped out in a new financial crisis which we'll talk about in the next segment. Uh, it's well and truly on coming. So um, on Thursday this week a notice of motion for bank separation was tabled in the Australian Senate by Pauline Hanson. Uh, now a notice of motion is a symbolic statement of principle so therefore it doesn't have the force of law however it does require the Senate to vote so it's very very useful to identify who we have in the Senate who's supportive of this uh, banking separation and who we need to work on more and while it didn't actually pass 15 senators voted for it so we've got 15 senators on our side which I think is pretty good 31 voted against it uh, now, the voting went this, as follows, and this very significant thing is that a government member, National Party Senator Barry O'Sullivan, crossed the floor. He voted with uh, all of One Nation Senators, all the Greens, the Centre Alliance, Catters Australia Party and Independent Senator Tim Storer. Uh, the other Independent Senators, Darren Hinch and David Lionhelm, voted with the Government and Labor, so the Government and Labor apart from Barry O'Sullivan, voted against it as mm. a block. Um, now, the, what the motion stated, it first of all went through a series of points you can read on our website, uh, talking about how the trust in banks has been undermined, the findings of the Royal Commission have made this very clear, went through the misconduct that's been going on, and that the integrated structure of banking has been a major cause of that. And therefore it says, it calls on the federal government to reduce the conflicts of interests by legislating the structural separation of the banking system where traditional commercial banking of taking deposits and making loans is separated from investment banking and all other financial services, including financial advice, wealth management, superannuation, stockbroking and insurance. Now we'll play a quick and then we'll talk about it. Uh, this clip is, um, you'll see Pauline Hanson first tabling the motion, it doesn't get read out. Uh, but then you'll see the responses from the government, from Labor and from the Greens. And what we'll talk about later, which you'll notice, is that there is a distinct shift in the government position. Um, whilst they say they oppose the motion, it's not an outright no. There is a proviso on it. Senator Hanson. Thank you very much, Mr President. I ask that general business uh, notice of motion number 1155, standing my name for today, relating to banks, be taken as a formal motion. Is there any objection to this motion being taken as formal? There being none, Senator Hanson. I move the motion. Senator Rustin. To make a short Leave statement. is granted for one minute. The government opposes this motion. In order to have a stronger economy, it is integral to have a financial system that is efficient, stable and trustworthy. The government will await the recommendations of the Royal Commission into misconduct in the banking, superannuation financial services industry. Question is, Senator Chisholm. Short statement. Leave is granted for one minute. 
Labor fought for a Royal Commission. Labor has called for the Royal Commission to hear from more victims. Labor is doing everything it can to hear from those through roundtables around the country. But we can't rush into significant reforms like those proposed in this motion before the Royal Commission has delivered its final report. Labor will look with interest in the final report in February 2019 for recommendations to address the shocking findings outlined in the interim report. Question is, Senator Denatale. Short statement. Leave is granted for one minute. Uh, the Greens support uh, breaking up the banks because we recognise there is a fundamental conflict of interest at the heart of the banking sector. Uh, we have been leading reform in this space. We led the campaign for a Royal Commission and we are now leading the campaign to reform the banks. Uh, we said it was important to do that back in 2017. Uh, since then, the Productivity Commission has said it too, ASIC has said it too, and the Royal Commission is clearly uh, saying it as well. ASIC says financial advisers to big banks recommend their own products instead of what's best for consumers 75 per cent of the time. Now, if that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. But it's not just enough to say that we need to break up the banks, to let banks focus on being banks. The ACCC needs to be put back in charge. We need to regulate it with teeth. We need some real competition in the banking sector, which is why we've advocated for a people's bank to restore competition to the mortgage market with the national low-cost people's bank. Breaking up the banks is a good start, but it's just a start. Only the Greens have got a plan to address this issue. Order. The question is that motion number 1155 be agreed to. Those of that opinion say aye. Contrary, no. Noes have it. Division required. Ring the bells. Well, Alicia, this is really very, very significant because what you've seen here is what you see here is a shift in the in what, where, where, where the government has been in the past. Because look, the government has said before that it has no intention of legislating for the structural separation of retail banks, none whatsoever. Mm -hmm. However, in this particular motion, it says whilst it opposes the motion, it's going to wait for the recommendations of the Royal Commission. Right. Mm. That's a complete change. Yeah, no. And, and I think this is, they're starting to feel the heat from the thousands of people that are literally contacting their MPs mm. about the fact that some real change needs some real reform, if we want to talk mm. about reform, has to happen. And that's Glass-Steagall, yeah. where you separate out the necessary banking system, the boring banking, the legitimate commercial banking, what used to be the case many, many years ago, from all the speculative investment merchant banking, stockbroking houses, insurance companies and everything else that's in these big banks today. So what we're saying is, and we have a legislation in the parliament, it was introduced in, uh, by, by Bob Catter back in June, that literally separates out the banks. So we're not, this, this motion is again consistent with the mm. actions, with the motion forward mm. in the parliament uh, towards breaking up the banks. And it's interesting the way the Greens phrase things, that they're responsible for this, that and mm. the other thing. If they knew how much work our people, our supporters, the people that watch this program we're doing, mm. right, they're oblivious to that. Well, that's why the Greens are even doing this. It's why the Labor Party shifted to be in favour of a Royal Commission eventually and why now the government has um, relaxed its position on Glass-Steagall to say, OK, well, we'll look at it, we'll wait for the Royal Commission and then we'll consider this, which is the same position of Labor. So it is a major shift. Yeah. Um, and the other factor is this um, Barry O'Sullivan factor, which is you have people that are willing or capable of going rogue at a certain point because the crisis is that bad and that puts um, a certain pressure on the government as well. And I want to show for that reason a clip from a speech that Barry Sullivan made the previous day on the Senate floor, which was the Wednesday, uh, and here he is uh, talking about splitting up the banks. And I've said before, no amount of legislation or regulation, no investment 
in the resources, uh, in oversight with regulations with the ASICs and APRA, will ever solve this problem. These places are too big for regulators and law enforcement agencies to be able to stay on top. This has to come with a cultural shift. I've said in this place before, I was involved in two Royal Commissions in the implementation in both instances of the recommendation of the commissioners. One had to do in law enforcement and the other had to do in corrections. And I've seen major shifts in the behaviour, the cultural behaviour within those particular sectors uh, as a result uh, of the exposure uh, to their behaviour and their corruption over a long period of time. And we're seeing that with the banks. But I have a fear, and I will continue to increase my call for the banks to start to divest themselves uh, of ownership, split up, if you like, send off the financial advising assets they have so that they can go back to being truly independent uh, advisory centres where people can rely upon the advice they got and not be wondering whether they're getting the wool pulled completely over their eyes. The impacts of this behaviour they are immune to the arguments in the banks. I know the names of families where suicides have occurred. As a result. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that uh, in some cases it, it may have been, and I, I don't know where the people have brought some of the, the pain upon themselves. I'm not suggesting the banks are responsible for every circumstance where there's been a foreclosure uh, in, uh, in the case of a family. But uh, certainly there are many where that was the case. These people were taken to the edge of the envelope with respect to the investments, encouraged, soft money, overdrafts, interest only. Uh, no obligation to pay down the capital for years. Um, this money was spent uh, in them supporting themselves in many cases through drought conditions, and it was never going to return. Productivity of the property didn't never have a capacity to return it. So ten minutes doesn't allow me to. I, I will. I will visit on this again, Mr. Acting Deputy President. But I want to send a clear message. Um, nobody trusts the banks anymore. No one in this uh, parliament, uh, I suspect, trusts the banks at the moment, and I expect that generations of parliaments will watch them very, very closely, will watch to see if their behaviour now as they respond to these revolutions uh, is the appropriate behaviour to, uh, to resist and to mitigate the chances of this happening again, and I think they need to have a very hard look at divesting themselves of these more risky practices. All I can say, Elise, is that if this is what going rogue is, i.e. representing your constituency because you're listening to them, yeah. I hope more politicians go rogue. Yeah, no, they will. And uh, it'll increase if everybody uh, does as we've asked in previous shows and puts in a submission to the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission is asking for feedback from you, from the people, get other people to do the same thing. And even if you just write two words, Glass-Steagall, um, we can be more thorough if you like, but we need that in order to avoid our deposits being stolen, the bail-in threat um, and all the other consequences of a new global financial crisis as we, you know, or much worse than what we saw in 2008. So you've got until the 26th of October to do that. Uh, get onto our website for the details and we'll be back very shortly to talk uh, in more detail about the oncoming new financial crisis.
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're dis discussing how Glass-Steagall has come up in the Australian Senate this week. And one of the reasons why it's an issue, a hot issue, and it's getting hotter by the day is the, the threat of a new global financial crisis. And over the last uh, week or so, there have been warnings from some of the leading financial institutions and central banks globally. We've had the IMF, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank and the Bank for International Settlements all making various warnings. So we'll go through some of those. Um, the IMF, they just held their um, one of their annual conferences, World Bank IMF meeting in Bali. And uh, the World Economic Outlook that was issued for October prior to that meeting warned of large challenges looming for the global economy. And it said that the extraordinary policy actions to prevent a second Great Depression have had important side effects. And they talked about the um, ultra-low interest rates, the build-up of financial vulnerabilities and the large accumulation of public debt as well as the erosion of fiscal buffers in various economies. So in other words, everything that we did to react to the last global financial crisis has left us vulnerable. And one of the things that was pointed out in the IMF's financial stability report, which was uh, titled, A Decade After the Global Financial Crisis, Are We Safer? And the answer was clearly not a yes. Uh, because they pointed to various triggers for a new crash and there are many, many of them. Um, Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, talked about the fact that the global debt has increased by 60% since the GFC. So it's up at, uh, in US dollars, 182 trillion. trillion. Uh, and at the IMF summit in Bali, they said that all of the risks are increasingly skewed to the downside. And most of this debt, at least, it can't be paid. It no. is speculative debt and it has to be written off, which is why we're calling for a new Bretton Woods type conference that was done after the end of the Second World War to have an orderly transition, reorganisation, like a bankruptcy reorganisation across nations. Mm. This cannot be solved by simply allowing it to be continued. Yeah. So, I mean, this goes hand in hand with the, with the Glass-Steagall legislation mm. to regulate the domestic banks and, and the credits and then the banking system with inside countries to stop them speculating and then you have to deal with the debt issue. Yeah, another aspect of that debt are what's called zombie companies, which the Bank for International Settlements put out a warning that the number of zombie companies, these are firms that are older than 10 years but they cannot service their debt, have reached an all-time high and of course that needs to be watched when the interest rates rise. Uh, and the Bank of England also warned about such debt. They talked about leveraged debt, which is extremely risky debt going to companies like these zombie firms. And they said that that um, market for risky leveraged loans is larger now than the US subprime mortgage market was in 2008. And in the UK, for instance, 80% of those loans are what they call cov light, which means they either have a very light covenant governing uh, the standards, etc., or none at all. But those loans get bundled up and sold as collateralised loan obligations, which is very similar to the collateralised debt obligations that bundled up mortgages in 2008. So it's all coming back to bite us. Uh, the European Central Bank warned that risk bubbles might be building up and there are risks that assets might be mispriced, understatement of the year. Uh, and in addition, Claudio Borio, who's the chief economist for the Bank for International Settlements, said that the system is in danger of a relapse 
and that there is little left in the medicine chest to nurse the patient back to health. Now that's a recurring theme actually, uh, Craig. Many various commentators, the IMF said are saying, we don't have the tools to deal with the next crisis because part of the reaction to the last crisis uh, was to take away the ease with which bailouts could be conducted. Um, and that mainly affected the United States. Uh, and there was a commentary in the uh, September New York Times, which was written by the Fed Chair and Treasury Secretaries who ran the bailout, Bernanke, Geithner and Paulson, and they referenced changes in the US Dodd-Frank Act, uh, the record low interest rates, and the fact that the, the Federal Reserve's books are saturated with quantitative easing. So how can we, we can't lower interest rates more, we can't do more QE, etc., etc. And that editorial was titled, what we need to fight the next financial crisis. Congress has taken away some of the tools that were crucial to us during the 2008 panic. It's time to bring them back. Now, whilst various other uh, authorities are saying the same thing, including the IMF, that has been refuted by numerous people, um, including the ex-IMF chief economist, Olivia Blanchard, who said, look, if we rip up the rule book, we can still do the bailing out with quantitative easing, for example, we could clearly double it, he said, the Fed balance sheet, and nothing terrible would happen. And then you also had Marcus Stanley, he's the policy director for Americans Financial Re for Financial Reform, who we quoted uh, in a video segment two weeks ago on the show, and this was at the National Press Club in Washington. So Marcus Stanley said the frightening reality is that in fact very few legal limits have been put on their ability to bail out the banks. In fact, we need more. We need to stop the possibility of bailing out the banks because, yes, the tools aren't going to work, but the, the only tools that we need are those that are going to help us replace the system. It's a political question, Lisa. It's not a financial question. The question which wasn't uh, answered back in 2008 in the last global financial crisis is why didn't the government step in, in the US in particular, and bankrupt the system, go with Glass-Steagall, right, and, and have an orderly transition back to dealing with the problems. Instead, no, the banks have the power. They manipulated the Obama and the Bush administrations and instead we've got bailout and we've got the same policies that are destroying nations today and will mm. destroy nations further. Yep, and you can read more about that subject and these warnings in the latest edition of the Australian Alert Service. So contact us for a free copy if you haven't already. We'll be right back to talk about the TPP. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Trans-Pacific Partnership will speed up neoliberal looting. Now, uh, Labor voted with the government this week to ratify the what's called now the TPP-11, given the, there are 11 countries now involved. Uh, on Wednesday, we are the fourth country to ratify this new free trade agreement. Now, the miners, the minor parties and the Greens opposed various provisions um, very, very strongly. They did an excellent job actually bringing up all the objections and you can go to Parliament web, the Parliament House website and look at the details because it's worth looking at. Um, but where they particularly opposed this uh, investor state dispute settlement clause which allows foreign countries or multinational companies to take legal action mm -hmm. if our government implements policies that might interfere with their money making, their commercial interests and that includes efforts to regulate them as well. So it has even been said that such legislation could interfere with Glass-Steagall and other types of efforts. Now, Bob Catter, MP for Kennedy, said in a statement about this that this takes away our sovereignty and hands it over to the giant foreign-owned companies. 
He called it a new form of corporate colonialism. Yep. And Craig, the Labor Party, you know, really took the cop out here. They said that they um, will vote it up and then when they get into power, they will amend it, um, you know, once they're in power. But the problem is, as a number of senators raised in the parliament, the legislation could only actually be reviewed in three to five years time. So we're going to be stuck with it. And by that time, who's even going to remember that the Labor Party made that promise? And sources told us um, that the Labor sellout comes from its ties to big finance, which while not as strong as big finance's ties to the Liberal government, are, are there, they're significant. Uh, and of course, big finance will benefit from the TPP's further liberalisation of trade in financial services. So we've identified the real agenda behind this. In fact, when um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was in the USA in February, he spoke to the National Governors Association and he made it quite plain. He said, basically, the TPP is more than just a trade agreement. He said it's a political and strategic intervention. And he talked about the fact that um, we need to shape an environment, he said, in which the most competitive and rule-abiding companies can succeed which, who might that be? Well, multinational corporations. Yep. And he said that's why we have backed the Trans-Pacific Partnership so strongly, not just because of the market access it delivers, which is beneficial, creates jobs and investments, but because it creates the rules of the road we need to match the economic journey that we're embarking on, which is the our rules-based liberal order of forcing um, the nations surrounding China, because bear in mind when he talks about the economic journey we're embarking on, that doesn't include China because China's not part and of the TPP. Right. Yeah. It's been deliberately excluded. Yeah, but let's, let's, this is basically free trade looting. Now, for 30 years we've talked about this. You know, this goes back to the policies of Adam Smith and the great liberal economists of the 19th century and 18th and 19th century. And the point is that this is basically slavery in a different form. The hmm. British Empire was based upon opium trading, slavery and so forth. These are the same policies. Yeah. The TPP is the same policies. And uh, we've lost, in our country, we've lost the car industry. We've lost, uh, I think Bob Catter in his, uh, in his release made it very, very clear. He says, you know, free trade is usually designed to be, you know, the seller and the buyer together. Mm. Right, but what you've got is you've got these middlemen. Yeah. Right? And that's where that the problem comes. Over. Right, so in the case, if you take the duopoly of Woolworths and Coles, for example, you know, you've got 15,000 dairy producers, as Bob Catter points out. Now, there used to be these marketing boards that used to regulate the price for the benefit of the consumer and for the producer. They've been abolished under free trade, so now you've got 15,000 dairy producers that now have to deal with Coles and Woolworths. Mm. That's a classic example of not free trade, yeah. but of a duopoly. And this is what you're getting with the TPP. You've yes. got these enormous companies that are coming between the producer and the, and the, and the purchaser or the seller. Not the trade is not... In, valuable is it is but you've got the manipulation of these third parties mm -hmm. that have given the power of sovereign governments in mm. effect it's rigging the rules of the game rigging the rules of the game and destroying the sovereignty of sovereign of, of governments mm. so we need to ditch this and we need to actually go with bilateral trade agreements and we talk about this uh, we've got an article in our Australian alert service uh, yeah. that people should call in for we'll read more about that because we've basically run out of time again but just as a reminder don't forget to get onto the Royal Commission's website find the details on our website we'll put the details on the screen and put in your submission today you've only got another week to do it so thanks for tuning in thanks Craig yeah, thanks Lisa and join us again next week for the CEC report